This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 85. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me. Shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Jesse Felder, founder and editor of the Felder Report. Jesse is a well-respected money manager who began his career at Bear Stearns and later co-founded a multi-billion dollar hedge fund firm located in Santa Monica. With over 20 years of experience, I reached out to Jesse with the hope of learning his beginnings and how his investing journey has changed or not over the years. What I came to learn from this interview, which we talk at length about, is how insider activity affects Jesse's investing strategy. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 85, and please enjoy my interview with Jesse Felder, founder and editor of The Felder Report. But first, a word from our sponsor. To my loyal listeners, subscribers, and fans, Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. The 2019 investor conference season is upon us, Where are you going this year? I'd like to take a second to invite you to join me and maybe a few of the guests you've heard on this podcast to our annual Microcap Investor Conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 30th to May 2nd, 2019 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. The Planet Microcap Showcase will be two and a half days of company presentations, networking opportunities, an educational workshop, and you will get to meet privately in one-on-one meetings with management of well-known emerging growth private and publicly traded microcap companies. We are back with new surprises and programming that you will not want to miss. So join us for the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 30 to May 2nd, 2019 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. For more information and register to attend, please visit www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. For this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, I would like to welcome Jesse Felder, founder and editor of the Felder Report. Jesse, welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. Hey, glad to be here, Robert. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. So uh, as we normally do here, uh, I want to get your background. You know, how did you get your start investing and in the world of finance? Well, you know, it was interesting. I didn't study finance in school. I I had always had an interest in in it since I was a kid. I, I actually started kind of paper trading, I guess. I didn't know what it was called at the time, but when, when I was like eight or nine years old, I started becoming interested in the stock market. And then I didn't study it, uh, but after I graduated college, I thought, you know, I've always had a passion for this. Why don't I see if I can get a job in, in the world of finance? And I interviewed um, all over L.A., uh, Morgan Stanley and a couple different places, and 
finally got a job at Bear Stearns. And uh, so I, I went to work at Bear for a couple of the most successful guys, probably the most successful guy in the L.A. office. And uh, quickly realized um, I didn't want to be a salesman, so I had to find somewhere else there to work. I found a guy who was basically running a hedge fund inside of Bear. And I went to work for him more specifically. And, and I basically was running every trade that he did. So I got to, to learn firsthand, uh, you know, from him. And uh, it was it was quite the experience. So that would have been like mid 1990s. So then so then from Bear Stearns, uh, you know, according to your bio, you then went and started your own hedge fund. Right. Right. Yeah. So I, I left with the guy at Bear who I was working with and we started a fund um, with about 100 million under management. And uh, actually, it was not just one fund. We started three funds. We had a long short fund. We had a, a long only fund and then an income focused fund. We also managed separate accounts and we started we had our own broker dealer. So essentially, he was the, the lead portfolio manager. I was assistant portfolio manager and head trader. And then we had a few other kind of support people that we hired. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was quite the experience. We also had, you know, with our own broker dealer, I had a couple of other hedge funds, New York funds that were doing, you know, processing a ton of their trades through, through me. So through our trading desk. So um, yeah, it was, and that was right in up, you know, from 97 through the peak of the dot-com mania. So I had, I had a front row seat, to a lot of that stuff it was quite quite uh, an experience. Mm -hmm. But you were and you were still, uh, you know, again according to your bio, you were still able to grow that that fund from a hundred million to a multi billion dollar hedge fund. Uh, just for clarification, am I correct there? Yeah, it it we started with a hundred million. By the time I left, probably in I left in March of two thousand. And it was probably up to a billion uh, at that time. It eventually grew to 10, 11 billion um, by 2011, 2012, something like that. But uh, at that point, it was when it all, it all kind of came crashing down. And my two former partners sued each other and the SEC sued the fund. And, and uh, so, yeah, I, I, uh, I left in 2000 because I didn't see quite eye to eye with uh, my partners in regards to, um, you know, ethical kind of things. So, yeah, they they continued to grow it, but I got to the point where I wanted no more no more to do with it, and mm. uh, and you know, like in most of my investments, I was way early, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it was that was my my hedge fund experience. So so then you know just to finish off your background, I mean, so you left there in two thousand, we're in twenty nineteen. You know, what have you been doing in for the last nineteen years? Yeah, so when I I quit the hedge fund, I. I had several people that wanted to me to manage money for them. They're pretty much just some friends and family. Uh, so I did that through 2014 and that was just, you know, some separate accounts, uh, that I managed. And at the end of 2014, uh, I decided to, you know, give them, uh, their money back and say, I just can't charge you a fee to, to, uh, you know, when I'm not finding a lot of ideas, um, to me, by the end of 14, stocks had become very expensive. The risk reward generally had become very unattractive. And I wasn't going to charge them money to, you know, to be in cash and, and wait. Um, and at the same time, around 20, 2005, six, I started writing about the markets and really found that I enjoyed that uh, a lot more. Um, the research and writing um, side of it to me was, you know, just much more, you know, suited me. Uh, a lot better. And, uh, you know, there's so much, so much with, you know, the business side of uh, managing money that uh, is unattractive to me from, 
you know, uh, dealing with clients to raising money to all, you know, all those types of things. You look at a lot of the successful firms and, and they spend all their time marketing uh, rather than actually doing the, the research and, and, and that sort of stuff. So I found that I'd rather spend time doing what I love, which is, you know, research and writing about markets. Mm-hmm. And also I found, you know, in, in even just doing this podcast and talking to some of the people I've, ha- I've had on here is most of them, you know, they started their own blogs because, you know, they just wanted to get better. You know, it was a chance for them to write out their theses and either have it critiqued, you know, by others because it's public, but at the same time, it helped them really hone in on what was important to them to their investing thesis. It sounds like you were, you had a very similar approach. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, you know, I, that really wasn't the the impetus when I first started writing in 2005. I started the blog because um, here in Bend, Oregon, we were, you know, it's hard to imagine we were the really kind of the epicenter of the housing bubble. Our our market, little market here, was the either one or two most overvalued real estate market in the country back in 2005, and so it was just. You know, I, I had seen the dot-com mania firsthand. Uh, you know, I we had several, you know, investors who were trading through our hedge fund at the time. And uh, I, I so, I you know, I kind of witnessed that firsthand. And then I saw that, you know, replay again so quickly, just, you know, five, six years later in the housing mania. And, and here in Bend, it was just absolutely insane. I mean, you couldn't go to a barbecue without, you know, every single person you talk to. Uh, telling you about how many, how much equity they pulled out of their primary residence and how many homes they could parlay that into. And I mean, I, I literally knew people that here in town had taken one house and parlayed it into literally 16 or 18 investment properties at, at the peak of the mania. And so it was absolutely wild to me to, to witness this. So that's really why I started writing, but you're absolutely right. One of the, the fringe benefits, and it's probably the, the greatest benefit I've gotten from writing was it's really attracted a lot of like-minded people and started dialogues with, uh, for me, a lot of valuable dialogues with interesting people. And, and so that has been, you know, um, very, very valuable to me um, in that regard. Mm-hmm. So my next question, uh, it's now a three-part question. So uh, hopefully, uh, you know, if I got to repeat, I'll, it's no problem here. Um, so, so Jesse, what, what was it like going this is going back to your to your uh, your start in the in the world of finance. You know what was it like going from working at Bear Stearns to running your own uh, multi billion dollar hedge fund, and then also going from working to there to just managing friends and family money. And along the way, did your approach to investing change when you went to each step of uh, of, of your career? Yeah, you know, my personal investing philosophy has been constantly evolving. I'm constantly trying to discover new things. I mean, I think everybody, when you find what you're really passionate about in life, you kind of have an insatiable curiosity about it. And so I'm always looking for you know new methodologies and things to kind of uh, integrate. But yeah, I mean, it really just started out uh, at Bear Stearns. Like I said, I went to work for a couple of guys who are essentially – very, very successful salespeople, and they had very little knowledge about how to make money in the markets. Um, and then when I went to work for kind of my mentor uh, after that, still at Bear, um, he really started introducing me to um, a certain type of analysis. And really what founded the, the, the basis of our hedge funds was um, insider activity. So we very closely monitored insider buying and selling. 
And, uh, you know, I mean, we would see uh, companies and, and when we moved to the hedge fund, this got much more, um, uh, you know, detailed type of analysis. So we had a, a relationship with CFRA, which is now a big, you know, research firm. But back then they were much more boutique and geared towards hedge funds. And so we would find, you know, like semiconductor companies, for example, who were where you'd see the CEO, CFO, you know, just sell off all their stock in one quarter. And then we would, you know, look at the cash flow statement or, you know, some a firm like CFRA would, uh, you know, have some type of like a, a, a red flag based on the financials. Usually it seemed like it came back to the cash flow statement where you'd have, you know, cash flow uh, somehow, you know, lower uh, than net income which to me is, is always a red flag, uh, you know, cash flow. There's very few circumstances where cash flow can justifiably, you know, be below um, net income. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that's just aggressive accounting. And so you could, you could see, you know, from inventory standpoint or receivables or whatever, um, sometimes in deferred revenues, you could see a company um, getting aggressive with the accounting to try and make a quarter. And then they make the quarter, then the insiders dump all their stock and then, <laughs> And then you would see the stock just get hammered that next quarter or quarter after that at the latest. And so to us, we found this kind of sweet spot where we could um, you know, put together this type of fundamental analysis with uh, a careful evaluation of what insiders were doing. And it, it gave us a really significant edge, on, on especially on the short side um, at that time. Um, mm -hmm. Since then, I found much more of an edge on the long side in terms of that insider stuff. So... Um, probably the only additional thing that I've done uh, since then is, you know, I mean, obviously having experience in analyzing, you know, this stuff over long periods of time, you see the same things over and over. So that that's valuable. But I've started to add more kind of um, technical analysis to the process. And it's really just more like momentum analysis. So, um, you know, I, I even if something has good insider buying and looks cheap, if it has very strong downside momentum, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll be relatively cautious. Uh, it's when all those things kind of work together for me, uh, when you find something that's cheap, has, you know, attractive insider buying. And usually, you know, when I say attractive insider buying, I mean like predictive insiders. I look at their track record and they have a really good record at, at uh, kind of timing their own stock price, which you know, should be insider trading, but <laughs> it's uh, it's really not in most of these cases. Um, and then when you have momentum kind of confirming that uh, these things are working in the right direction for you, the market's telling you that you're right. Um, to me, that's that's those are the opportunities where I really want to load up the boat. And, and you know, maybe I find one or two of those a year, but, uh, you know, that's that's kind of, you know, the, the things I'm looking for these days. Mm -hmm. So I actually just to quickly follow up on that because um, you know I actually I think I just heard you do another interview where you were talking about stock buybacks and how this has kind of been a big fad right now um, and and uh, you know most most CEOs are looking into going buy back their own stock you know so I mean have they been listening to the Jesse Felder podcast and telling them hey you know this guy buys you know when when uh he he's looking at companies that are buying back their stock to and then you know that's in an essence artificially inflating the the price you know I mean what what's your comment on that 
Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I think, um, you know, the stock buybacks weren't necessarily outlawed in the past, but companies didn't pursue them for fear of being prosecuted for manipul stock manipulation. So after the, you know, the 1920s and the, the 29 crash and all that, there was a lot of new laws and regulations and stuff that came in because, you know, there were at the time there were trusts that were developed. And so they were like buying trusts. People would put a bunch of money together and they would consciously, you know, specifically manipulate the share price higher. Um, you, know, you read Jesse Livermore, you read uh, Reminiscence of a Stock Operator mm -hmm. um, or, you know, the uh, Boy Plunger, the Jesse Livermore biography. And he talks about that. He was hired by these uh, conglomerate or, you know, just like groups of people to manipulate the stock price. And so after that, you know, stock price manipulation was essentially outlawed. Corporations um, really didn't do buybacks until the early 80s. And that's when the Reagan administration said, look, we're not going to prosecute you for manipulating your stock price if you buy back stock. And but to me, it's just it's so obviously manipulation mm -hmm. um, that, uh, you know, it probably should be regulated to some extent. To me, I don't understand why companies can't just do tender offers, just do a tender offer, right? You don't need to go out in the open open market and, and push the stock price up through open market purchases. And if really you you uh, you know were had the long term shareholders in mind. You wouldn't do that. You would actually do a tender offer and say, you know, we're willing to buy this number of shares at this price. Anybody who wants to take us up on that can can do so. Yeah. Uh, and that way, doesn't you're not manipulating the price, uh, you know, of a stock. But the executives have a huge incentive to manipulate the share price higher. So. Um, you know, I, I, you probably read my blog post on the topic because, you know, there's studies that show uh, that when stocks, when, when companies are out in the market uh, buying their shares back in, um, insider sales go up, you know, like three or four hundred percent. And so it's pretty obvious, you know, that uh, insiders use that opportunity to, you know, when there's when they know there's going to be demand for shares uh, to to use that opportunity to sell. And so that that's a huge conflict of interest, right? Either the stock price is cheap enough and it makes sense for you to do a buyback, and in that case, you shouldn't sell your shares, uh, or it's not. And if you feel like your you know price is overvalued or whatever, and you're, you want to sell your shares, then why are you doing a buyback? So, um, yeah, you know, I know that Congress has, uh, you know, there's a couple of Congress people looking at this now because the SEC recently came out with a report. Uh, on the topic, suggesting that, you know, this is a clear conflict and, and they might have to regulate that, you know, in some way saying, if you're going to do a buyback, you can't sell stock within a certain window. So um, I think that's a good first step, probably. Mm -hmm. So in terms of your your thesis, because this is interesting, we in I've had many people on where they do, uh, you know, they look at insider buying, they want to see, especially in micro caps, they want to see that management owns a significant portion of the company, so you know they have plenty of skin in the game. So, at least in the microcap side of things, you know you you like to see that you like to see that they're going out and buying shares on the open market. So, you know, in 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 your experience, on let's say on the long side of of your insider of your thesis, you know, what are some things that signal? Okay, um, this this is a good reason for them to go in and uh, and and buy more shares of their company. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it goes back to just old school fundamental analysis. I, I look at usually a company's valuation in a few different respects. You know, I, I, 
I'm very, you know, my least favorite is probably a discounted cash flow model, but mm -hmm. I do use that. Uh, but I, I like to look at a company's valuation history. You can really tell a lot, you know, if you look at 20 years uh, of a company's history or even even five or 10, you know, you can you can start to see a range of when the stock is expensive, when the stock's cheap. And, I, you know, I used to back in the hedge fund. Uh, we used to get value line and I would literally just flip through value line every week. I'd, I'd look through and they, you know, that's, that's, what's cool about it is they show the value line and it was basically mm -hmm. like the valuation history and you could see, is it above the value line or below the value line? And you start, and to me, that was just like a, uh, an analog, you know, way to, to screen for stocks. And I would just flip through and watch, you know, look for the stocks that were most furthest below their, their value line. And so I still do that but today, but it's in a you know different respect. I'm basically just looking for stocks that are trading at the low end of their own valuation history. So um, you know that's that's kind of where I begin. Um, but you know I, I come back to Jesse Livermore again. There's a, the quote I'm going to mangle it. I'll paraphrase it. it. Says you know whenever a stock trades below its intrinsic value, the insiders will always come in to buy shares. Uh, nobody knows better than them what intrinsic value is. And so to me, when I find a cheap stock and there's no insider buying or if there's insider selling to me, that's not management confirming my opinion that the stock is cheap. And that's really what I want is nobody knows better than they do. And so if the stock is really cheap, they should be buying. Mm -hmm. So what what about in the I, I'm I'm curious. I, I want to go through some situation analysis, too, because in, in microcaps, there's there's sometimes that owner operator who's been in the business forever, let's say the seven to 10 years and they never sold a share of stock, but now all of a sudden they're like, all right, well, I want to, I want to sell some of my shares. I need to pay for whatever it is. Who knows? It does. It doesn't even really matter. You know? So what, what happens in those situations where you see, you know, an anomaly in terms of the insider activity? Well, I mean, yeah, there's always, you know, I guess the saying is, you know, there's there's only one reason to buy. There's tons of reasons to sell. And so, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, I mean, these guys a lot of times are just diversifying. So it's really much more difficult to parse the insider selling than it is the buying. You know, for me, what really demonstrates significant buying is is uh, uh, when guys start buying in multiples of their annual salary. So mm. I mean, you can look it up in the the SEC filings. A guy is making three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. If he goes buys a million dollars worth of stock. To me, I read that as he's willing to forego three years of salary in order to be, you know, have that uh, pay come in in shares. Um, to me, that's 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 interesting. But when I see guys, you know, who make three hundred fifty grand, you know, they're buying twenty, thirty, forty grand worth of stock. I mean, to me, that's more likely they're they're just trying to paint the tape uh, and and get people interested, you know. Uh, uh, so, you know, you can also look back and see, okay, what does this guy's buying history look like? What, what happened the last time he bought? And and so to me, a lot of people say, well, hey, you looking at this buying? And I go, well, yeah, the guy's been buying from 50 all the way down to 25. <laughs> to me, that, the guy clearly doesn't know what he's doing uh, in his own shares. Uh, and so you can look back. I mean, and you can find in some companies where guys literally pick the bottom over a 10-year period. And they'll they'll buy a ton of stock right at the right time, and the shares will rebound. And so that's just them knowing, um, you know, that uh, the stock is cheap, and uh, you know that you know maybe this one quarter was bad, next quarter is going to be good. And so to me, I look I look for those guys. But I, I want to make a point too about you said owner operators, mm -hmm. because I really think this is you know this comes back to the passive investing thing, and and I think a lot of people don't know 
that uh, the passive indexes, the S&P 500 index, was changed, you know, 13, 14 years ago to uh, go from not just a market cap weighted index, but to a float adjusted market cap. And so that is a was a major change that I think most people aren't aware about. Uh, and it actually means that the, the indexes now systematically uh, are under own owner operated companies. They are underexposed to those companies because those companies that have lower float because the insiders own a ton are going to be, you know, uh, systematically underweighted by the indexes now because they have low float. And the companies where you have tons of float because there is no insider ownership, those are going to be overweighted by the index. And so to me, it's it's completely backwards from the way that I want to invest. Um, and I, I think it's going to be a problem uh, over time for the indexes. Mm -hmm. uh, probably the best example of that is you look at Intel under the under the helm of, you know, Andy Grove, when Andy Grove owned a third of the shares or something, the stock from the 80s, you know, to, to 2000 went up, you know, however many thousand percent. In 2000 or whatever it was, 2001, Andy Grove sold all of his stock, retired as CEO, uh, chairman. Um, and the stock has literally uh, not gone anywhere since. So you made a ton of money owning Intel shares while Andy Grove was an owner operator. As soon as he, he sold a stock and quit, Intel's made you no money over the last 20 years. And so to me, that's that's kind of an extreme example of, of, of you know, the problem with focusing on, on the indexes um, and also why I think it's really exciting that these companies are systematically kind of left for dead by the indexes. It, it leaves a lot of opportunity for people like your listeners who are, who are looking for those types of things. Mm -hmm. And real quick, before I go on to my next question, um, do you happen to own any shares or were a shareholder in uh, Intel? Um, no, I don't think I, you know, actually I'm, I'm short semiconductors right now. So I'm not directly short Intel, but I'm short the semiconductor ETF. Gotcha. Has, has the type of information or the information feed changed over the years in terms of, cause it sounds like you've always focused on insider activity. I mean, has it been more or less difficult in getting that information and then being able to continue to maintain the edge that you've had? I, you know, I think uh, the information's gotten better. There's a couple of websites I love. Um, one was developed by my friend Asif Surya. It's called uh, Insider Inside Arbitrage, uh, InsideArbitrage.com. It's a great site. He actually puts out a weekly newsletter highlighting the, the, the most important sells and buys of the week. Um, another one I like is OpenInsider.com. Um, but, you know, these websites with this public information available to everybody were not around, uh, you know, um, 10 years ago. So I, I think the information is more available. What I do think is, you know, people uh, don't necessarily do, you know, why I feel like I still have an edge is because um, people look at any kind of buying and, and go, oh, great, their insiders are buying, I'll buy some, mm. rather than doing the rest of the work uh, and realizing, okay, because it, I, I do think it takes some parsing to figure out, okay, is this just painting the tape? Are these guys really bullish? Um, you know, and there's certain guys that I've followed throughout my career. Bill Steeritz is probably the number one guy who, when, when Bill Steeritz is buying stock, I sit up and take notice because the guy has such an amazing track record from Ralston Purina to Ball Corp. Um, for example, you know, Ball Corp was a, was a, a smaller cap company made glass jar maker, aluminum cans maker in the dot-com mania. Nobody wanted to own this stock. 
he took the company over, put his own management team in, bought like $40, $50 million worth of stock, and it's been like a 40-bagger since then. Mm. Um, so, I mean, the guy's just phenomenal when it comes to running companies. He was in a book called The Outsiders. He's featured. Mm-hmm. And still, people don't know who Bill Steers is. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's there's guys like that who I you know I pay attention to. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, I still feel like, there's tons more information out there, but but knowing what to do with the information is still is still a, a skill, I think. Right, and and real quick again, uh, shareholder were a shareholder in Ball Corp. I was a shareholder for Ball, and I sold it way too soon. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, so okay, so now I want to apply, you know, your insight on insider activity and your track record and and all of your knowledge to microcaps, you know, and and really the focus of this podcast, you know, so. What what would you say for those who are focused in this asset class, ways in which they can take what you've learned and your expertise and apply it so that they can find companies early and often? Yeah, I mean, I think probably this is the one area uh, where you can find value in the market, things outside of the Russell 2000 um, that are owner-operated. I mean, to me, that's probably the greatest, the most fertile place to look for for value ideas because with this huge push to passive investing in recent years and all this money that's come out of active there's literally um, you know no money um, looking at these things and you know you, like you said you might have to you know find them and sit on them for a while before they start working but eventually they'll work I mean you know Buffett said in the you know short term market's a voting machine and long term it's a weighing machine maybe it was Ben Graham. Um, but, uh, you know, when you find these things, they will work, uh, work eventually. And I think that's really probably the only place to find them is things that are outside the purview of the indexes. And that's, that's small and owner operated. Mm -hmm. So then within, so once, once let's say we found a, a basket of, of some of these companies that fit your criteria, you know, then in terms of when you're evaluating the insider activity, for, for these these companies, you know, what are what are certain things that you look for that might be different than, let's say, a small cap or a large cap company that um, is also doing similar things. Well, I'm, you know, I've I found a few of these um, just through um, insider buying, uh, and they're always super obscure companies that I've never heard of before, and sure. so it takes it takes a ton of research to kind of understand the business model and. You know, some of them because they're they're small, and I mean, uh, I I have you know bought a couple of them and and sold them again too soon uh, before they started working, uh, and so I, yeah, I I really think it's, uh, you know, and the 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 hardest part about it is when the executives are super bullish. Uh, and are buying up stock. So this is the opposite <laughs> of what we're seeing with you know stock buybacks and executive massive executive sales. In these situations where you have a microcap and the executives are super bullish and they're buying as much stock as they can, they're trying to keep the bullish message kind of hidden from view because they want the stock to stay cheap so they can buy up as much as they possibly can over a period of time. So it's sometimes really difficult to kind of uh, ferret out the you know what's really going on and why why are they buying and why are they bullish because they're really you know kind of tight-lipped about it um, and and to me. That in itself can be a, a very bullish sign that they're not out promoting. They're not on a you know Wall Street roadshow trying to promote the shares. They're literally just 
buying stock, quietly buying stock and um, putting up, you know, good quarterly numbers. And so, so to me, yeah, it's, it's much more difficult in the micro cap side because those guys are literally the opposite of some of the, the, in the massive, you know, market cap companies you have like, you know, Nvidia, which I'm, I'm, I'm short through the semiconductors, you know, a, a super promotional CEO, um, who's literally doing everything he can to, to prop up the share price while, you know, insiders there sell a ton of stock. So it's kind of the opposite where they're just, you know, quiet and buying. And so it's a little bit more difficult, but I take that quiet buying in itself as a bullish sign. Mm -hmm. So then my, my next question is in terms of, uh, on, on the micro cap side as well is it, and, and I had this question right now, is that at any time, did you focus on, on or have some exposure to smaller micro caps, either personally or in your fund and, and saw that as a place where it, it as a new investor, potentially, uh, to really learn about the markets and really develop a good fundamental thesis? I think it's, uh, I mean, I have owned small caps and micro caps um, on and off, you know, through time. I, you know, probably the best example that I don't own anymore was, it was Red Hook Ale, um, you know, back in the day. It's, I think it's Craft Brewers Alliance now. Um, but this was a, a stock that, uh, you know, they, they built, they built like $50 million brewing facility. So here in Bend, I, I know, you know we're like the <laughs> microbrew micro capital of the universe in terms of microbreweries to, to per capita. Um, and so, you know, I know a lot of the different people in the beer industry and all that kind of stuff. And I saw this Red Hook, they had built a brand new $50 million brewing facility up in um, Seattle. And uh, this was during the time when, when micro, uh, micro brewing was really taking off. So this was like mid 2000s. And they were only utilizing like 30 or 40% of the capacity. Uh, and so they were just kind of burning cash every quarter. Um, but they really didn't have much debt and, um, you know, but, and they had the assets on the balance sheet, uh, and, and during the financial crisis, this stock sold off so hard that, I mean, it was literally trading for less than half of its, the brand new brewing facility cost them to build. So it had like a $20 million market cap or something trading under a dollar a share. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm looking at this and I'm going, this is a classic Ben Graham, kind of net net you could buy this buy this whole company up and literally just sell its brewing facility and double your money um and so to me that was just super attractive uh, i think there was some small insider buying um uh but you know the the funny part about the story was you know deschutes brewery is based here in bend they're one of the biggest micros in the country now uh i called up gary fish who was the ceo of deschutes and deschutes was really running out of brewing capacity they were 100 using 100 capacity i said gary let's let's start buying up some red hook stock and then you know you buy up 10 percent of the shares and then you can say hey i'll use the rest of your brewing capacity up there in seattle and i'll have just you know another distribution thing up there he thought Great idea, Jesse. But those guys are buddies of mine. I can't go buy their stock behind their back. So he didn't. He didn't end up buying any Red Hook. But Red Hook stock went from about under a dollar a share to I think it was like eight or ten bucks. Uh, you know, only a few years later. Um, and so to me, yes, that when something you know, has a twenty million dollar market cap, there are no funds or anything that can can uh, buy it in any meaningful size. And so it's literally that's those that's where you find things that are left for dead. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, so to me, yeah, the, there's, there's really, 
can be some terrific opportunities there that you can find there that you can't find in, in bigger, bigger stocks. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I have to ask you this question. My audience might think I'm, uh, I'm uh, uh, catering to, to my uh, microcap cause, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, you know, I know, I know you, uh, you tend to focus more on the macro markets, you know, but why would you say that micro, microcaps don't get the same kind of coverage when there is so much out there that supports that you know not only is this a great place to learn about investing but there there's still opportunities here well i mean yeah because the money you know on the research side of things is all you know geared towards institutional investors and all that kind of stuff and so you know institutions are just too big right i mean you have a 20 million dollar market cap any institution that with any kind of money at all would have to buy up the entire company um, to to have any type of exposure to it. And so they just they can't, uh, you know, they could do all the research they want and they could buy up, you know, 10 percent of the stock and it still wouldn't have any diff- make any difference at all on their returns. And so th- that's why this this stuff is just ignored. Um, is because it's just not big enough to make a difference to institutions. And for that reason, um, you know, there's just no, no institutional research or anything that goes into it because there's really no money in it for, for Wall Street. Mm-hmm. So then uh, an- another question I have, and this is based actually on, on a blog post that you did. Um, again, you know, you tend to focus mostly on a, you have a more macro perspective when assessing the markets as a whole. You know, so what, what changes would you like to see that would make equity markets more efficient, in your opinion. Well, you know, it's really interesting with this big move to passive investing. And, and I think I've seen some studies that, you know, more than 50 percent of the market's going to be passively invested at some point this year. And the problem with that is passive investing is is really based on the efficient market hypothesis. Mm-hmm. So the only way it would make sense is if, you know, to the market is actually efficient. The problem is the more passive investors you get, the less efficient it becomes, right? Because the, the, the whole efficient market hypothesis rests on the idea that investors are doing research and that stocks are priced based on that research. Um, and so when you lose active investors in the markets, you lose that, uh, that, that influence. And so, so prices are not necessarily – to the extent markets become more passively – uh, influenced uh, stocks move not so much on fundamentals, but simply on flows, and so I think a lot of people don't realize either that uh, you know the biggest algorithms in the markets right now are basically just, uh, or the most simple algorithms in the markets are just passive uh, passive investors, right? They get flows into a fund, it triggers a buy. They get flows out of a fund, it triggers a sell, and those are just computer buy and sell orders, and so. You know, when so I think we're at the point now where the market is being driven largely by flows rather than by actual research. And and so to me, that that is, uh, you know, potentially uh, destabilizing for the broad market, but it's also creates terrific opportunity for people who are doing that research um, because the things that are are being by, you know, uh, bypassed by the flows or, or ignored by the flows are interesting opportunities. And things that are getting money, you know, uh, just on the basis of flows that don't mm-hmm. necessarily deserve it are, you know, can be interesting short selling opportunities. Mm-hmm. And so I think it creates more opportunity, uh, but, it's, but it's also, you know, um, uh, suggests to me that, you know, a lot of the, the bull market 
of the past, especially the last three, four, five years, is just a function of investor flows. And if investor flows uh, switch the other direction, you know, you inevitably get a bear market. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what's funny is that I, it, I've had a few people on that talk about, you know, now is the time where it's more of a stock pick, picker's market, you know, and I, I, at least for me, I, I'm, I, my impression is that it, it's never not a time or never not a stock picker's market because there is just this latent inefficiency where, you know, especially with the rise of passive investing, I mean, there's always going to be those individual stocks that are going to sneak through and that if you did do the extra bit of research, there you go. Here, here's a couple ideas for you right there. You know, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think it's always a stock picker's market. I think, you know, probably the other, the flip side of that saying is that, uh, you know, the easy money has been made. And, mm. you know, you hear people kind of throw these these kind of phrases around. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, you, I, you know, you could have bought almost anything in 2009 and done really well over the last decade. Right. Uh, going forward, it's clearly not going to be that easy. Um, and so you're going to have to be more selective. Uh, you know, you can't just buy anything and, and it'll go up, you know, three, four, five fold. Um but yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think it's always a stock picker's market. I mean, it, that's you look throughout the history of markets, and yeah, it it pays to focus on, uh, you know, good cheap companies over time. Yeah, it's just it's it's hard sometimes because like you'll you'll come across a company and you think you might be the first one. Especially this is really mostly to microcaps, but like you might think you'd be the first one that discovered it, and next thing you know, uh, there's three or four other people that might have just done a screen that day or maybe even a week earlier and then all of a sudden, you know, this new, this company that you just found that you think it's at a, it's at a reasonable price that, you know, you've done all your research on and next thing you know, it's, it's already uh, up tenfold and you're like, oh man, like I thought I just found yeah. another, you know, because it's just so much information so fast, right? Like, yeah, but you know, that's, that's an interesting thing, point that you bring up too because, I find that the greatest opportunities, I, I think passive is not only infected just the broad market, but it's infected value investing too. And so that you have money going into, you know, essentially like a, a, a passive value strategy or a smart beta kind of value strategy. Um, I think that's why, I, I mean, I've never found a lot of use for screens for that reason, because, um, you know, if a ton of money is flowing into these passive products, whether they're value based or not, you know, that's going to mean that those stocks are not going to be uh, as, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking for things that are unpopular, underloved. And, and so if there's passive money flowing into them, that makes them less likely to be that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think I found that uh, things that are in value indexes are also much less likely to be. And I think this is one of the problems with value investing um, right now, too, is that uh, the things that I've found that are successful value investments over the last few years have been really idiosyncratic, unique type of opportunities. They really maybe didn't find, show up on value screens for whatever reason. Um, but but yeah, I mean, they they uh, and so they wouldn't show up in those value portfolios. And so, um, yeah, yeah I, I think, yeah, it's, it's a super interesting time for all of these reasons. But mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I, I think it's tough, uh, you know. 
people lament the you know how value hasn't been working for a few years and i'm i look at that and i go are you crazy value has been working great mm -hmm. as long as you're staying away from the things that are you know crowded value trades right value is supposed to be a kind crowded of a uh, a uh, you know contrarian type of thing but if mm -hmm. it's not contrarian then it's probably not a worthy value investment i like that crowded value trades i'm gonna i'm writing that down right now that's a good one um so okay, so this is my favorite question. I love to ask, you know, Jesse, what what investing experience would you say helped shape uh, your current approach to investing, or had the most impact on you in in general? The most impact. Well, um, you know, I mentioned Ballcorp. I think to me, it was very it was very interesting in the in the nineteen ninety nine two thousand. Um, and I was still at the hedge fund and I'm watching these dot-com stocks go through the roof and I'm watching another group of stocks that were just absolutely left for dead. One of those was Ballcorp. And, you know, to me, it was a company that was super boring. I mean, you start doing the research and you're like, really, <laughs> how could this, how can this be a good investment? And, um, you know, I probably should have put a ton more money into it. Um, but it really taught me that, um, it, it you know, doesn't really matter the uh, you know how boring the line of business is or whatever. When you get a, a management team in there that knows what they're doing um, and is willing to put their money where their mouths are, um, you know almost any any type of business can be exciting. I, but I think most of the things that I've learned have been through losses. I mean, I've mm -hmm. I've had some some painful losses at times over the last uh, you know twenty plus years and and. Those experiences have, you know, have have taught me. You know, you burn burn your hand once on the stove, and you go, "Okay, I'm never ever doing that again." Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think losses. I think it's helpful to think, and I I think I got this from the, one of the Market Wizards books. It's helpful to think of losses as tuition at the school of trading. <laughs> um, you know, it, everyone's going to have losses, and you learn usually learn a lot more from your losses than you do from anything. That's for uh, sure. You do making money, so I. You know, I mean, I, I think it's important to look at it that way and not feel bad when you lose money. Everybody does. Uh, but, you know, the important thing is to, to learn from it and say, I'm not going to make that same mistake again. You know, so then, so then, Jesse, what advice do you have for, for new investors that are looking to enter the market? Well, I think the most dangerous advice right now is uh, for new investors is that there's only one way to invest is that you need to put your money into the S&P 500 and just, you know, uh, hold it forever. Um, I really do believe strongly that uh, everybody needs to find their own way. Um, yeah, everybody has their own unique risk tolerance, their own unique values and, uh, you know, strengths and weaknesses. And everybody needs to find their own way to invest that suits their own sensibilities. And so, um, you know, I, I really don't think... I think a lot of investors also spend time trying to emulate another successful investor. And you'll never be able to do that successfully. I think the the thing to do is is learn from you know certain techniques from these guys. And so, you know, I've learned from Warren Buffett and Paul Tudor Jones and Stan Druckenmiller and whoever I can I can actually learn about and study, I've tried to pull things from each one of those people in trying to develop my own um, style. Uh, because you have to have, you have to come up with something that you believe in 
through you know good times and bad and that you're going to be able to stick to and because if you don't you know that that's when you're going to start running into problems and you're going to you're going to lose money be, be, simply because you don't have faith in the process and so you have to have, find something that you can believe in and have confidence in and that's really unique for for each individual person i think that's great advice i i love that advice um, so then, you know, rounding the bend here, Jesse, you know, where, where can my audience go and find more information about all things, Jesse Felder? Um, I write a blog at thefelderreport.com and, um, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I do a lot, tons of reading. Um, it's usually more macro kind of focused stuff. Uh, but, uh, it's just at Jesse Felder on Twitter. Perfect. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for sharing your, your insights and thoughts here with me today. And uh, I'm really excited to share this interview with everybody. That was a blast, Robert. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning into the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Jesse, again, for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podme.com and search Planet Microcap podcast or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source, and the Microcap Review Magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap podcast. Have a great week, everyone.